Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on my good friend, Emily White. Emily has been on most every side of the music business, label, promo, video production, tour and artist management, and everything else. Entrepreneurship runs through her veins, as does a sense of community and obligation. Currently expressed in her role as the founder of I Voted, which galvanizes voter turnout by giving fans free access to concerts when they show a photo of themselves outside their local polling place on election days. Emily joined me recently to discuss the publication of her second book, How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. For the first time, musicians and those around them have access to all of the best practices and hard-won collected wisdom that Emily's brought to bear for her clients over the years. Listen and learn. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Yeah. As I tell people, uh, you know, I ride the roller coaster like everybody else. Yep. So, what's happening uh, out there? I mean, a lot, actually. I mean, New York is fine. Uh, it's sunny out, which is nice. I feel busier than ever, frankly, and I feel really in my groove. There's waves of sadness, right, depending on what's going on. But, yeah, it's like I'm really busy. So it, it is what yeah. it is. Yeah, it's been a strange phenomenon to be so busy in the midst of all this and to um, have a lot of like positive professional stuff going on when you know there's lots of other people who are suffering and losing jobs. And, um, it's very difficult to sort of like be gracious and graceful with all of that. Yeah. Well, it's the opposite of being tone deaf, right? Like that's <laughs> whatever the word, you know. There's, there's better words, but that, that's how I say it because it's just like, you know, it's like I had a book come out March 5th, you oh. know, and there's artists with albums out and there's people that had films out the week of September 11th and things like that. And it's everybody's individual choice, you know, like I have no idea what Lady Gaga was planning. I'm sure it was amazing and some sort of in-person parade or something, you know, and she pushed her album and that's fine. And then look what's happening with Fiona Apple. You know, so um, from a privileged perspective, artists and creators can be creating right now. I was talking to Jeff Levin. I assume you know who Jeff, I assume you know Jeff. And uh, he said, you know, thank goodness this didn't happen for artists and everybody in the 80s, right? Or anybody, right? Like no Netflix, no, I'm, I'm sure there could have been positive creative things that would have come out of that. But um, I thought that was a smart comment. Yeah, that's funny that you say that. I had that conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago about um, more on the social isolation tip. Like if this had happened, even uh, 20 years ago, it would have been a little different. There might have been more faxing, <laughs> but, but 30 years ago, it would have been, um, it, I think it would have been a national nightmare. Um, I don't know how people would have done it. Um, so yeah, I think that in that regard, we are lucky. Yeah, the Fiona Apple thing is fascinating. She's kind of hitting this status now where she's almost like, uh, she's like Charday, right? Like she can go away and just drop right back in where she left off. And um, she has a really good 
uh, gauge for like when is her moment. It's really fascinating. I don't think she does have a gauge for that. I and I'm a I'm a huge fan. Um, I think she is a pure artist. Should we talk Great. about the book? Sure. Thank you. Sure. So, in reading some of the marketing material about the book, uh, before we talk about some of the, the content itself, a few things uh, stuck out for me. One was that um, the book was born out of necessity, and I'd love to know uh, whether that's clever marketing copy or what that what, what's what's the what's the truth behind the copy. Yeah, I didn't set out to be an author, and this is my second book. Um, my first book is called Interning One Hundred and One, and actually with probably a little bit more with interning 101 I felt an inherent need to get the information out there and that one really started as a handbook for our management company because I felt like I was explaining a lot of basics over and over and I just thought well if they have this handbook maybe then we can work on higher level things um, this one was a little different I felt like I was explaining myself over and over and over um, whether it was at conferences or I'm originally from Wisconsin, and I don't have to post that I'm in Wisconsin. It could be Thanksgiving or whatever. And local musicians, you know, reach out to me, want to pick my brain. And I just felt like you shouldn't have to know me um, to have access to this information. So I wanted to make it available to everybody. And I think part of that ties into the, the next point, which was you said that the, um, the industry was really set up um, to confuse artists. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And I'm talking about like the 1950s, right? I'm of talking course. about the digital era and just these, you know, archaic formulas that are, they're not confusing to me now, but they were confusing to me when I was studying it, right? So it, yeah, it was the pre-digital music industry was set up on the business end, particularly on the recording end, um, to confuse artists. So that was my other motivation in writing the book is I feel that all the information in the book for the most part is out there. I've just never seen it put in order <laughs> from recording to release or creation to execution. Instead, I speak at conferences where artists are spending a lot of money to be at South by Southwest in the audience and I see them taking notes and I see them literally like grasping at nuggets of information like, okay, this is what sound exchange is. Okay, this is when I need a publicist. And again, if this was an industry that was set up decades ago in a manner that was confusing to artists, to me, that would be like trying to teach a child, you know, multiplication and division before you teach them addition and subtraction. It would just be really difficult for the student and the educator. So, um, yeah, I put it together in a, in a linear manner. And in a world where artists are theoretically surrounded by um, specialists, whether it's a manager, an agent, an attorney, or what have you, why is it important that they, in particular, understand the things that you articulate? Well, I think it's for both. It's definitely for us industry people. You know, one reason is, I mean, it feels weird to even say this in this time, but I've said this to our artists before. Like, what if I, as a manager, die, right? So there's, like, that extreme. Um, but team members change all the time. People leave the industry or whatever reason. And then um, with industry people myself included, the, the reason I know how to do all this stuff is I've tried it all, right? So industry people have had to educate themselves on digital and the modern music industry. So um, the book is certainly for both. Mm -hmm. And what's the peril for an artist who says, I create the art, I, I don't want to know about all this stuff? Yeah. Um, well, then you're probably missing out on money. 
And I wrote, I mean, that's actually another reason why I wrote the book. I was sick of taking on national acts that, and finding money for them. And on one hand, that's part of an artist manager's job. But if that's happening to artists that people have heard of, what about everybody else? So this book I wrote in a manner where I don't think I, I think I do define a mechanical royalty. I definitely don't define the statutory rate. Um, I want artists to understand how, like literally how to build a sustainable career, which to me is very data driven, email addresses and phone numbers, and then to collect on all of their revenue streams. I don't want them overthinking, you know, royalty rates and things like that, um, or certain vocabulary terms that confused me in college. It's just like, here's how you build your career and here's how you get paid. And then if you want a deeper dive, read Passman's book. I, you know, I linked to some other things. There are, there are entire books on each chapter of my book, but I don't feel that art, like artists really need that. If they want to learn the history of copyright, please go do that. But I just think it's too overwhelming otherwise. So it's, it's, it's mainly, it's the, it's the primer. It's the roadmap of things you should have a working understanding enough of, or the things you should be informed that exists so that you can ask questions and make sure somebody else is diving into the details of these things for you. Yeah, and that's happening. Um, I had an artist message me. He was offered a publishing deal. It was a co-pub deal. Um, it was a really low advance. And again, I don't work with this person. I'm friends with them. I'm like, here's my book. Read chapter five on publishing. And he came back and um, he quadrupled his advance because he then understood the difference between a co-publishing deal and an admin deal. So again, it lays out all this information. This is a pretty experienced artist too, but he fell into the same insecurities, which I told him, which is, oh, I feel bad. I don't know. I'm like, don't feel bad. That's a 20 year term. And you're going to accept $2,000 for that. He doesn't need the money, but this was pre-pandemic. Go work at the coffee shop if you need $2,000 that badly. And then again, all he had to do was, you know, ask if they do admin deals where that would have been a more reasonable advance or if they only do co-pub deals, if the advance can be increased and, and that happens significantly for him. If it's not too much of a trade secret, where would be the places you most commonly find money? When you walk into a new situation with an artist, you know, a, a somewhat a, a working touring artist, you walk in day one, you kind of do your review of the business. What were the, what were the obvious areas? That's a great question. Um, usually catalog. Um, there's usually royalties missing. Um, and I also created a Google spreadsheet in the book. That's a revenue stream chart. Um, so I did that for our artists and I, I basically lovingly yell at artists in the book. I'm like, if you are, if there are blank cells in this spreadsheet, you are missing money. Uh, but yeah, definitely catalog also reviving that catalog, you know, doing a pre-order for vinyl if vinyl didn't exist for your previous releases. And then I was a tour manager a long time ago. So not only reducing expenses on tour, but also generating more revenue. So something you've been doing for a long time, um, things like VIP upsells, you know, we're actually um, evolving that into um, webcasts now, right? Um, we manage an artist named Julia Noons. She had a canceled May tour. Um, she's planning a big blowout webcast where she's going to make a pretty big announcement at that as well. I, I could go on and on about her, because, and most of it is very her-driven. She is doing everything right. But I also said to her, you know, you could still do a VIP upsell for webcasts and do a private performance for five fans, 20 fans, whatever that number is, take requests, do Q and A's. So um, 
Yeah, I kind of forgot the question, but uh, oh yeah, how we where we find money, catalog stuff, and then also uh, creating new revenue streams in case any of them are missing. Yeah, I think on that front, what something that was interesting to me um, very early, actually, just reading the uh, the initial introduction, the, the sort of the interview with uh, with Zoe Keating, something that was interesting to me, I hadn't thought of in the past, was I'm I'm very used to an artist, you know, an individual artist, sort of has either an idea or some self knowledge or um, a brand ideal of the things that they would do or not do. And, you know, in the yeah. old days, maybe it was sponsorship or today it might be platinum tickets, you know, wh whatever that is right for an artist's ethos. I had never seen an artist say that, that, that they didn't really participate in merch. Now her reasoning yeah. made great sense, environmental reasons, sort of, you know, that I take no, I take, I have no criticism for anything obviously in her, in her choice. But I'd never seen that particular use case before of an artist actually foregoing what would be for an artist at her level probably a pretty good revenue stream. Same, um, and that again, that's someone I've known for 15 years. Her her little sister is my best friend, and I also didn't know she'd never made a music video. And she lands sinks like crazy. And I'm not saying don't make music videos, don't make merch. Zoe is an example of an artist that is true to herself, and it's all about being pure to the art. Um, by the way, I thought of um, a really important revenue stream that I think artists sometimes overlook because artists and industry people like are so scared of publishing and all publishing is, is um, collecting on and exploiting in the legal sense of the term your songwriting, the exact same thing that, you know, a label does for your master recording. But a lot of times artists sign up for ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, you know, sign up for their PRO and they think they're done as far as publishing collection goes. And I think it would be particularly confusing not to get too into the weeds because the PROs encourage you to create a publishing designee and then your individual songwriting name. So you're like, oh, well, I'm already collecting on my publishing. And I have nothing to gain by saying this, but I really love Song Trust um, because anyone can sign up for Song Trust. It's basically uh, an admin deal that you can also get out of. Um, so if you are landing syncs, if your songs are getting covered and you are just signed up for your PRO, you also need to make sure your publishing is being collected on. And like I said, I've taken on national acts and uh, they didn't have their publishing collected on. It's crazy. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So they, they go through, they sign up and they say, I'm done. And they sort of wait for the check to arrive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, um, in the course of putting the book together, um, were there any aha moments for you? Were there things that you thought you knew or, or some conventional wisdom that, that you had been living by that surprised you? Did, did, you know, did you come away from this learning? That's a great question. I'd probably have to think about it more. I think I mostly learned from the Zoe sections because everything yeah. else, the Zoe interview, because everything else was very much my, my life experience. It was a powerful way to start the book, to have an artist's voice and to have an artist who, um, to your earlier comment, has a... Um, you know, has sort of a truth that they're working from, um, has a point of view, sort of knows the boundaries or the limits, knows the things that she wants to care about and think about. And then what, the, you know, there's, there's a confidence there that I think, um, I think people don't really understand that a lot of times the artists don't bet on themselves. Um, right. They don't, you, you know, you used the word confidence before. I've always thought of it as, I, I guess, a mixture of confidence and just this idea that, Artists never know if there's going to be another kick at the can, you know, and, and I think that's led to a lot. And I don't know if that's whispered in their ear to like take all the money off the table every time now. And then it's only artists with a real sort of 
confident streak like a Radiohead or whomever who can say, you know what, we don't need it all every time. And by leaving yeah. some for next time, um, the audience is hungry. The audience is able to come back. Um, I think that's a really interesting dynamic like this, maximizing the revenue today versus having a career. And um, I don't know if that can necessarily be codified into a book, except to maybe talk about like case studies and individual artists and the choices they've made, and then trying to apply that to whatever your own ethos is. I wonder how you, how you think about that for the spectrum of artists. Yeah, definitely. The whole point of the book is to build a, a long-term career. I really mean it with the word sustainability and you know, that, that fear and insecurity is, is definitely there. It, it still exists amongst young people. Um, I taught management at the Clive program at NYU in the fall. I, and that's in Tish. It's just these phenomenally talented, sometimes, you know, musical theater actors, things like that. A lot of them didn't know you could record and distribute music without getting signed. And I just was like, what have we been doing for the past 10 years at conferences and things like that? And um, so I basically taught the course based on the book because so many were artists that wanted to learn how to self-manage. And I'm like, look, you need to do everything in this book if you want to get signed. I'm on panels with major label people all the time and they nod their heads yes, like build a career, you know, build fans, create great art. Um, if you don't care about getting signed, obviously you need to listen to this book. And if you do get signed, it's even more important that you listen to this book so you um, are capturing all the data in case that label falls apart, if they drop you, if your A&R person moves on. So the whole point of the book is like, here's everything you need to know to build your career brick by brick and know who your fans are. Mm -hmm. If you had to give an artist the Cliff Notes version of the book, what would be the two or three things you'd say, focus on this? Or if you don't focus on these things, it's at your own peril. Um, collecting email addresses from your fans, collecting phone numbers, and knowing where your fans are. The next time I present on this book or teach a class on it, I'm gonna open by saying, why are tech companies the most valuable companies in the world? Because they have our data. Um, and in music, as artists and industry people, we just give that data to the streaming platforms. We have no idea who the fans are. So really, i probably not super sexy, but artists need to think of themselves as a tech company. You need to know who those fans are. You need to be able to communicate with them directly. And you need to use it to strategize your touring or we can talk a little bit about this or not, like what we're doing at I Voted, right? It's like in the normal touring world, I see this all the time. This is not a diss on agents, but I see agents just book like the same 10 or 15 clubs for a national tour. Instead, look at your social media metrics, look at your website metrics. I've done this many times with artists all over the world. Find out where the fans are and go there instead of booking a show in Cleveland and hoping that people show up. So yeah, I think that that's, that's sort of a fascinating sort of aha realization, which is if you build that, what you're really talking about is build the mechanism to speak directly to your fans and that's portable. It doesn't matter then who you're signed to or who your t-shirt company is or anything else. You can tell your fans where you are, where you're going, understand where they are, go to them um, and yeah. not let somebody else intermediate that relationship. Yeah. And, and again, Julia Nunes is a perfect example of this. She's been doing it for a long time before we started working with her, but she has been releasing a song on the first of every month since January, along with a YouTube video, along with a merch item that's often like an inside joke about, you know, a lyric or something. And so when the pandemic hit, yes, we did have to cancel, you know, a May tour, but to her, it was just like, okay, that's sad, but is it the first yet? 
You know what I mean? Like she's continuing her output. And then, like I said, we'll do a big blowout webcast show. We'll have an exclusive merch item that you could only get at that show. And then she'll be making an announcement about kind of what these tracks are leading to, her idea. So yeah, if you're privileged enough as a creator, now is the time to create and, and keep going if you can. Um, nothing has stopped her career. If anything, she continues to evolve. If this book were coming out nine months from now, or if you were still working on it, how do you think the pandemic situation would inform the content, if at all? Is there anything you'd be telling people to do differently? Not really, because I wrote it in mind with artists in mind who are unable to tour at any time, um, be it due to disability or Zoe Keating, so sadly losing her husband to cancer, and now she's a single parent or caring for an aging, aging parent. There's countless artists that can't tour even in non-pandemic times. So I wrote it with those artists in mind. So everything in it can be done at home. I'm sure I would have made some references or certain nuances. And I still, I have a link in the book because I hesitated on writing this book for a long time because the information can get outdated. So I just said, okay, here's a link. When I find new things that I like that I think can support artists, I'm going to post it at this link. And I'm sure we will be updating that as far as um, webcast information goes. I mean, we have webcast stuff in there, but obviously there's investment um, going into it and things are being really beefed up. Yeah, that, that area, it's funny. I was speaking with someone else about this. Um, that model or that media channel has existed now for over 20 years, but it's finally having its moment. It's finally getting mainstreamed. And it's fascinating to me that it started off as something that was, you know, a, basically a promotional tool, but really it was, it was always many to many. It was never really, you know, outside of individual cases, um, I'm sure, but it was always, let's take a big event and make it bigger. Let's take the big event and bring it to people around the world. And to see it adapted now, it's truly like individual broadcasters. And it seems, it, you know, with a little bit of hindsight, um, it seems like, yeah, that would have been the use case, right? Like people... People want the intimacy. It's fun to watch the multi-camera shot from a big festival or a big event, but that's a little, that's novelty. That's not yeah. really a new, like, content type. Right. You know, it's just television and, somewhere else. And you and I love production as much as anyone else and, and the live show experience. We're not saying it's replacing that, but there are some special moments happening. Um, you know, I also work in sports and you've been interviewing some of my clients you know, my dad runs a, a swim team in Milwaukee. We are booking Olympians to do Zooms with his team left and right. I mean, those are experiences that those kids would never have. Uh, not never, but maybe once a year, once every few years. And it's the same with music, right? It's like with Julia, when we do the VIP upsell, again, like make requests, ask questions. I mean, she's very engaging on social media, but I mean, like, I love Noel Gallagher. I'm sure Noel would never do something like that. But if he did, I would be so into it. You'd be first in line. <laughs> I mean, don't even get me started on Noel stories. But, um, yeah, of course. Um, to put you on the spot a little bit, is there anything that you've seen from your artist or another artist in particular over the last six or eight weeks where you say, oh, wow, like, that's a really of-the-moment thing or a really great use case to to turn what's going on right now into a, a really like different artist fan experience i think i already said it i mean the stuff julia is doing definitely pay attention to her um and again i, I think a lot of the direct to fan connections have just been amplified um we manage a, an artist named taurus who was on tour in europe when um i don't like saying his name but the president 
uh, did the travel ban from Europe. So my business partner was up all night and, and that was like a break even to her, you know, her album just came out. And um, so my business partner was up all night um, trying to reroute her through London, get the band home and everything. And I don't have the numbers, but I know that fans just gave her thousands of dollars. I don't think she asked for it, but yeah, they've just been reaching out to support her like crazy. And that's an artist who's on merge. You know what I mean? So um, I do think the direct-to-fan connections have, have really been amplified, not just for the artists who know how to do it, but but for everyone. Yeah, it's, that that part is is super interesting. How it is, uh, you know, it's sort of necessity being the mother of invention, um, yeah. and you know, also pushing artists um, to a certain extent. I, I want to say out of their comfort zone, but a lot. I think there's a lot of artists that you know in the past never would have just spontaneously live streamed on an Instagram yeah. live or um, because, you know, they think about production or presentation. Right. And um, I think it's going to be very interesting now that they've had some experience with this and the sky didn't fall and they didn't get criticized for not having their hair perfect. Like the authenticity that this has forced um, being to be brought to the table. Um, it's going to be really interesting over the next three to five years to see what, what survives and what comes forward. Because I do think some of these are new, media types that that didn't exist before um just because the yeah. tools were there they weren't being used to create new content types that's exactly right and for better or for worse the music industry has always been uh at the head of in innovation um and so to me that's what i see here i mean you know more than anyone i have just been like physically heart sick over what's happening in the concert industry but at the same time as an overall industry and from my perspective where i'm always focused on artists we just have to continue to innovate, iterate, pivot, and evolve, and not just using those buzzwords, actually do it. Um, you're on the board of I Voted. Um, as you know, we activate venues to let fans in on election night who show a selfie from outside of their polling place. Well, now we're offering artists the option of webcast, and fans can access the stream by RSVPing with a selfie from home with their mail-in ballot, or if in-person voting happens, doing it the normal way. To me, that's a very natural evolution because to your point artists are webcasting anyway and i'm the first to not just assume an artist is going to do something like i'm constantly telling people when they're like hey can't they just make pre-pandemic can't they just make a video can't they do i'm like look just it's harder than you think and so i i i'm sensitive to being like just do a webcast they're doing it anyway they have their own setups and so that's a very seamless evolution and so whether it's man management or activism or the industry at large. I mean, you tell me if this, if this is a totally crazy idea, but I'm thinking about these venues. You know, I live in Williamsburg. We've got a million venues around, but I think about the knitting factory down the street, and that's just an empty space right now with an otherwise excellent staff. And I'm just sitting here like, well, okay, the staff needs revenue. The state needs revenue. The country, country needs revenue. We don't have legalized marijuana uh, in New York. Like, can we turn venues into um, legal marijuana dispensaries? I know that's a mess of laws. <laughs> um, and then in the states where it is legal, um, we're going to need testing. So can we turn venues into testing centers? Again, I, I just think like we need to listen to public health experts and the credible news, as difficult as that is. I mean, I was just talking to a billboard writer who's like, well, if shows don't happen this fall, I'm like, statistically, they're not, you know? So that's why we have to plan and innovate and try to generate revenue to take care of people um, so we can get through this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple of other quick questions. I see we're, uh, we're, we're pretty much at the end of our time for now. Um, 
You mentioned earlier that the book dropped, was it March 5th? Yeah. What if anything had to change in your own rollout? Yeah, again, just the opposite of being tone deaf. So um, not being like, it's me, let's all talk about me. Um, I w- I, I'll tell you another time a story about um, my attorney was managing an artist who did have an album come out on September 11th and wanted to put out a press release. And it's, just, I mean, again, you want to be the opposite of tone deaf. So one of the first pieces of content that popped up with my book was um, I taped a podcast with Arielle Hyatt a while ago. And so, yeah, that was like the, you know, second week of March or something. And so I posted it and said, Hey, want to pretend it's a few months ago, listen to this conversation between Arielle and myself, you know, so (laughs) just want to be sensitive to um, the situation, but also, you know, keep moving forward because people, not to put my book in this category, but people want Fiona Apple albums to listen to, you know, they want things to read, they want things to do. So you just have to be mindful about how you communicate that, I think. Yeah. How much of the book um, was self-referential in terms of uh, you used elements from the book in your own marketing rollout? Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely taking my own advice in so many ways. I've had frustrations with my publisher. I'm completely on my own, you know? Um, and at the same time, when we do artist invoices at every month, I should have this page number memorized, but the revenue stream checklist, I just go through it to make sure that we're not missing any revenue for our artists every month. And I encourage our team to do the same. So it's an operating manual for your business. It is. It's really yeah. handy. That's great. That's great. Well, um, I would definitely like to um, have you come back later in the spring or early summer to talk uh, in, about I voted in more depth. Um, Thank you. Once the, uh, I think once that landscape is a little more uh, solid, I think there we could do a deeper dive into some of the issues we're going to see from maybe like June or July through the, the home stretch. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there that uh, we can oh, and it's time to. Yeah, because yeah. you're getting the data geek. I mean, geek is not the right word. The data, the data-driven strategy that we're doing, and I am high on life cranking on that. That's for, and I will say it's, and you probably experienced this too. It's so fun as far as artist discovery. You know, I'm I'm getting to listen to all these artists that we're finding. That's like the number three you know, top Spotify streamed artist in Milwaukee, but is so new. His, he has, his Polestar data is two headlining shows for 283 tickets. I never would have found him if I was just looking at touring data and I'm enjoying his music too. Wow. That, that's, a, that's actually really fascinating. We, yeah. We will unpack that as well. That's, that's super Can't interesting. Well, thank you. My pleasure. And I hope it's okay that I call you Larry and it's great to hear your voice <laughs> and to see you. It's great to see you as well. Thank you so much to Emily White. I'm already looking forward to having her back. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Remember that Spotlight On is available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the other great podcast outlets. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. And a big thank you to Ant Taylor and the entire Light crew. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit light.com. You'll find us at lyte.com. As for me, I love to hear from you, so keep the feedback coming. Reach me at lp at light.com. Please share this episode with a friend and leave feedback on your podcast platform of choice. 
It's a big help for our cause. Thanks so much. Be safe and stay in touch. We'll be right back. 